All right. Well, welcome back to my show, The Mark Claire Show. And I've got not one, but two guests with me here today. Uh, first up, she is a comedian, a, a, a chamber of council member I, I hear apparently, uh, and an all-around great gal and experts in all things Judaism. <laughs> this is what, I'll, is what I'm going to call her. Uh, Rachel Tobias, welcome back. Well, not welcome back. Uh, we, we've talked on Lions Liberty, but this is a new place. So welcome for the first time to The Mark Claire Show. Thanks so much, Mark. I love this, the format of your show and thank you so much for having me. And that is correct. I just got a trustee position to my local chamber of commerce. I'm a small business artist. Right. Wild. Yes, thank you. Well, it's, it's incredible who they're letting into the chamber of commerce nowadays. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> No screening whatsoever. <laughs> uh, also with me, he's a former host of the Crypto Show podcast uh, and former employee. This is I only found this out moments before the show. He's a former employee of the underground conspiracy slash libertarian bookstore in Austin called Brave New Books. This is a store my friend Buck Johnson has, has mentioned many, many times as being a very inf influential place for him. Uh, so, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. I'm um, way more proud to be an employee of Brave New Books than even my own podcast that I did for four and a half years. Um, and by the way, real quick, um, I want to just, if I may plug, uh, my guest currently is my house guest is, uh, Dr. J Wendy painting. She, uh, does, uh, Oklahoma city, uh, uh, Timothy McVeigh research and her book is aberration in the heartland of the real. And then I want to plug our friend, uh, Rose, her Substack is movements, patterns, and formations. A lot of, uh, really intelligent analysis about politics and society. And uh, yeah, really grateful to be here. Sort of thing. And I, I do want to talk a little bit more about your background. Uh, we'll get into Rachel's too, since, since you know, it's a new show and everything. But I'm curious, really, a little bit how you got more into this conspiracy world and how you found yourself working at that very cool sounding, I've never been to it, bookstore, Brave New Books. So, I mean, um, it's a little hard to say. There were YouTube videos I saw uh, online back in, say, like 2009, 2010, that sort of like introduced me to a lot of conspiracy stuff. 9-11, a cold stuff, whatever. And then um, I ran into Harlan Dietrich, the founder, not only of the Crypto Show, actually, uh, but of Brave New Books uh, back in 2010, I think it was. Um, I was uh, walking out of a bar and him and my uh, junior high buddy, uh, Thad, were uh, basically bullhorning in the street, trying to alert people to whatever the topic was. And I went up and started talking to them and bullhorning. And apparently I was being a little... Uh, a little crazy with it, and they had to kind of take the bullhorn back. But uh, that's you how were I was joining used. the bullhorning. I was joining the bullhorning. Yeah. Do you know what we were? You remember what you guys were uh, bullhorning about? I think it was about? the Council of Governors, uh, which I can't even remember what that was. But um, <laughs> but goddamn it, did it piss you off? It, it pissed me <laughs> off. It pissed them off, and people needed to know about it. And then uh, weeks later, I went to Brave New Books, saw Harlan again, and went from being a customer to uh, an employee for a long time. So. So you were kind of like in the realm a little bit already. Did that? Did did you just find yourself on various rabbit holes? Just being in that bookstore, were you constantly absorbing new material? And I gotta imagine you meet some interesting characters there. Oh yeah, I mean we had tons of books on. I mean whatever rabbit hole you name, uh, we had uh, people, lecturers, speakers all the time giving presentations, and of course it was sort of a uh, forum for uh, you know actual writers and just everyday people to talk about. X, Y, and Z. And so it was uh, really my formative intellectual and conspiracy and libertarian years. And by the way, when we say underground bookstore, it was literally, it was not just figuratively, it was literally it's not underground a metaphor. Bookstore. <laughs> it was underneath Chase Bank. No That's less. hilarious. That's yes. amazing. So people need Does to have a secret entrance. Did you need to go through like a convenience store or something to, to get there? Sure. Why not? Yeah, let's go with it. <laughs> 
you had to kind of know where it was. Exactly, exactly. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, the subject I brought you guys on to tackle with me today is the subject of Kabbalah. What I, I guess, I don't know if you'd refer to it as a sect of Judaism. It's it's related. And of course, as I mentioned, Rachel is my resident expert on all things Judaism. So Rachel, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit more to this audience and, uh, you know, tell them about your uh, your upbringing a little bit. But, you know, maybe not the two hour version. We are, we did that one. Yeah, I can link well, to it. Well, we'll, we'll do the, you know, the quick version. The so I agree, you know, somewhere between conservative and orthodox jewish was not a fan of it uh grew up with lots and lots of temple on saturdays very important part jewish school everything like that and i went to a public high school really just felt out of place so like yeah I, i'm not a big fan of this religion i had so many questions no one could seem to answer those questions as much as i would try to talk to rabbis and various people or my own my own family and i ended up leaving home when i was 18 and just leaving the religion in general and saying like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. Became a hardcore atheist, became president of an atheist club out where I'm at in New York. <laughs> Did that for a while. Then around 2018, you know, started to kind of see the light on certain things, stop being an atheist. 2020, certainly the spiritual battle that we're in drove a lot of things home for me. And around 2018 is when I went through a lot of conspiratorial research. So these things overlap. Found out about, you know, various 9-11. Uh, my buddy Titus Frost, who did Pizzagate, all these things, saw these things unfold, went from being a progressive Democrat to an ANTAP, somewhere right-leaning. Lots and lots of evolution, certainly on my part. So more than happy to talk about things. While I didn't grow up with Kabbalah, as women were discouraged, I certainly known about it. Um, and as you mentioned, this Jewish mysticism and esoteric thought. So more than happy to discuss it. And that's the the quick summed up version. <laughs> that is a very Cliff, Note, Cliff Notes version of things. And uh, it's interesting, you know, no matter how far away you run from religion or did run from religion at one point, after the last few years, it's hard not to find yourself back, at least in the sense of understanding that maybe just simply a rejection of the whole thing isn't going to lead us necessarily any, anywhere much better. Well, still not a fan of Judaism. And, yeah, and yeah we're, to, be back, clear, but, um, to be clear. To be clear. A better understanding of of a lot of warnings from Christianity and other religions and yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and back to you, Chris, when did, uh, I know Rachel mentioned when and she first met you that you, she mentioned coming on the show at some point to talk about Kabbalah here. And you said that you actually like did a lot of research and know a lot about it. So when did you first run into this thing and, and, and sort of dive into it on your own? So I met Rachel only really a few, a couple of months ago, but I, I feel like I've known her for years um, and I'm far from an expert, but yeah, I've kind of been into it for, uh, probably the same amount of time uh, as when I first encountered Brave New Books, which is about 12 years ago. Uh, and I can't specifically remember exactly how I got into it, but um, it just, you know, you go into that rabbit hole, it, all the rabbit holes lead together. And basically all the rabbit holes lead to the occult and esotericism, a big part of which is Kabbalah. And so Kabbalah is a big part of the Western magical and esoteric tradition. And it's also one of the core elements of Freemasonry, and the uh, other secret society. So you can't really understand any of that without understanding Kabbalah on some level, basically. So does does like the foundation of Kabbalah then predate all, all those secret societies you mentioned? You know, and that, that's a great question. And it's one of those things that everyone has a different opinion on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's different traditions where Kabbalah was communicated directly from God to Adam or from angels to Adam in the garden. Uh, it was it was communicated to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai when God gave him the Ten Commandments. Um, as far as the earliest written uh, 
evidence that we have of Kabbalah, it dates back to the 12th or 13th century in Spain, in parts of Western France. Uh, and there's some glimpses of it, um, according to some experts, in uh, the 1st or 2nd century AD, uh, kind of among Gnostic texts in uh, Palestine. So it just kind of depends, you know, um, because it was an oral tradition, and that's what Kabbalah actually means. Kabbalah means, actually, I, well, fittingly, Kabbalah means three different things that are different levels of abstraction. It means tradition. It means that which has been received. It also means mouth to ear, you know, communicating something mouth to ear secretly, right? So those are sort of three different levels of concreteness or abstraction. And so the idea is that Kabbalah was around hundreds or hundreds of years or longer before it was first written down as an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. But if that's the case, we we just can't really get any specific information on when it originated. So it comes down to these uh, these legends about it, basically. And Rachel, uh, I know you you have a whole book there, uh, Kabbalah. Where do you think is is the best place to start about maybe talking about maybe our, our sort of our modern iteration of of these ancient traditions that I think we run into this a lot when looking into occult practices. You, you you find one thing and then you go back and it's actually, you realize, well, they're just kind of repurposing the thing before that, the thing before that. And it's hard to say where it all really starts. But I think as Chris kind of said, kind of the some of the premise here it sounds like is that this is like the real stuff this is the full thing they left that stuff out though you know in the bible we we showed you the 10 commandments but we didn't show you this whole thing this is what we passed down this is like the sort of secret knowledge this is the key to everything yeah so i want to preface that i'm not here by the way to promote kabbalah necessarily i think i think it's good to understand any sort of magic or rituals that are used against us you know especially by the the elites or shadowy secret societies or whoever um, in terms of any of my research, this is a book called by Dion Fortune, The Mystical Kabbalah. This one is from 1936, and Dion Fortune uh, was the founder of the Society of the Inner Light. She was alive 1891 to 1946. And in this book, what she specifies is that it's this continuing tradition that evolves and that there's a lot of misinformation put out there because there's different schools of thought. There's some schools of thought that want to discourage the masses from understanding this, that think that it's they don't want to put this information before the profane. And so they put out misinformation to, to misguide people who want to study in, into this. But this kind of thought can be very dangerous, potentially. And she also mentions that even if, you know, she she personally felt that the information should be available to anybody who who really wanted it, you know, who has good intentions, but really wanted to study it and felt like it's such a complicated thing that it doesn't really need to be overtly sub subverted and changed to um, try to hurt people that wanted to use it. So I think there's just, it's, it's kind of interesting to me, the different sort of perspectives on that, you know, and again, I don't think this is a toy. It's not something to be messed around with. Um, but I would say, I mean, this stuff has probably been around for a while. And she mentions, I have a quote here. The mysticism of Israel supplies the foundation of modern Western occultism. It forms the theoretical basis upon which all ceremonial is developed. So who knows, you know, how long it's been around. And I just want to say one more comment. The general idea of occult study is that you are supposed to use cosmic forces and cosmic energy to somehow to to work in unison and develop your own personal will 
and impose that will on the world and the environment around you. And that's sort of the basis of a lot of thought. And and again, it's not a toy. So here to educate, not to encourage. Right. Um, for sure. Right. Yeah, if I can add to what Rachel said, I mean, traditionally, because there's essentially like three forms of Kabbalah. There's, you know, traditional Jewish Kabbalah. There's Christian Kabbalah that developed during the Renaissance. There's Hermetic Kabbalah that developed more in the past 100, 200 years that um, got syncretized with Hermeticism, i.e. the uh, Emerald Tablets of Hermes or Thoth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say Hermetic Kabbalah is sort of the, the full filament or consummation of not just Kabbalah, but the magical tradition in the West. But typically you have um, this exclusivity to it. Even in Judaism, you were supposed to be married f- at least 40 years old. Uh, you, you're sp- you, it's not necessarily that you're supposed to, but you really need to be fluent in Hebrew and Aramaic to understand Kabbalah. Um, so there, there's, there's, there's exclu- ex- exclusivity on at least two ends, a practical end for actually being able to tackle it appropriately. And then, uh, it, you know, Kabbalah, like other forms of occultism, is a tool, it's a technology, it's, um, it, it's like magic. Magic is essentially a tool technology, and it's used against us. So, obviously, like, it's like a nuclear missile. Like, uh, governments like our own don't want just anyone to have nuclear missiles because then they can't control us. And don't get me wrong, I don't want to imply that every Kabbalist or school of Kabbalism or whatever or other magical traditions are all about control or, um, uh, yeah, about control. But, uh, you know, insofar as it intersects with power, I think that's obviously the case. And so that's the problem is that the power centers are inextricably linked with Kabbalah and other forms of occultism. And they use it against us. And why would they share it with us? Because if they shared it with us, we would be aware of it and able to combat it or even use it ourselves kind of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the occult practices themselves may not be about control. I mean, as as Rachel kind of mentioned in the quote there, yeah, you can use anything for anything. You use a tool for anything. But there does, it does seem to be more about, at the end of the day, empowerment, sort of individual empowerment. You are channeling these cosmic forces or whatever they may be to impor, impose your will whatever that will may be. Um, Whereas I think when we're talking about taking from just that individual idea and then we're applying that in the centers of power, when the elite are applying that idea of their will and their maybe their collective will and utilizing it for that, well, then, you know, it might not be innocent even on the individual level, but certainly when it's collectivized and and utilized by the power elite, it becomes a little more problematic. Exactly. I just want to add real quick. um, I approach this from a Christian perspective. I'm a Christian. Um, Everyone has their different opinion on Kabbalah and stuff, but um, from my perspective, uh, you know, Kabbalah is not necessarily inherently bad or good, um, but there are, you know, prohibitions, at least in the the Bible, about um, certain forms of magic. And part of the reason for that, and, you know, and even Christians will debate this in Jews, but is because magic is essentially uh, putting your will before God's. Now, there is the idea that white magic is actually utilizing magic with your will to conform to God's will. And, you know, I mean, that's a debatable thing. But um, my, my point is you should approach Kabbalah, even on a personal level, uh, at least from my Christian perspective, with the understanding that um, it, I, I believe magic is real. I think magic is real on all sorts of levels. Um, but um, the question is, is it, in, does it conform with God's will? Is it necessarily the, the proper thing to do? Um, uh, 
you just need to you just need to approach it with caution, kind of in the same sense that Rachel you know mentioned earlier. So I think that is is part of what can get people into the occult in the first place is when they first run into it, they might've had an idea about it, about magic, for example, and then just think, well, it's just a silly thing that I don't really give too much credence to, so I don't think about it one way or another. And it's only when they first get find themselves in some sort of occult practice or group or something and they see magic work and then they realize, oh, this is real. And then, then we can kind of go, you know, one of a few ways. You might say, this is real and maybe I should back the hell away from this stuff. Or you say, well, this is real. If it exists, if God created the universe or what have you, and this is, you know, a technology that can be used, why should I not use it to impose my will and to improve my life and whatever it may be? No, and, th- and that's a great point. And that's where it gets a little murky or uh, debatable and where, because like, you know, any action you take to improve your life is any technology, you know, there's a famous quote by Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And it's 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 a clever quote, but it's also uh, very meaningful in that that's very profoundly true. So my point is like, it's not necessarily, you know, from my perspective, sinful to utilize technology to advance your own purposes uh, because you're somehow superseding God's will. I guess the point is, it, it's it, it's open to interpretation, and I I think I think the study of Kabbalah is in, in other forms of the occult is important, uh, and I think you can benefit from it. Again, just uh, it's a question of how far you take it, and again, these are open to interpretation. So, who wants to tackle? I mean, I think the biggest concept I see just I I just automatically associate with Kabbalah when I think about it, which isn't that often. But when I do, the first thing I think about is this tree of life concept. Who wants to tackle this? Oh. You know my (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, for for the purposes of this, I studied both some of this book and then some online courses. And those online courses had a very different feel and format from the book. The book was a little bit of a warning. The book was a little bit in depth about the history of Kabbalah and the different layers of it. And the courses, by the way, and I'll get to the tree, the courses were more presented in a self-help format of how you can use mm-hmm. it to benefit you. And, and Rachel shared none of these with me, by the way. So speaking of exclusivity. <laughs> so that distinction there's, there's was kind of everywhere. interesting. Um, so Dion Fortune had mentioned that basically the tree itself is a famous glyph. It's called the tree of life. And she said, it's the best meditation, a symbol that we possess because it's the most comprehensive and that it represents different cosmic energies and almost like the consciousness of God himself. It says, the universe is really a thought form projected from the mind of God. The Kabbalistic tree might be linked to a dream arising from the subconsciousness of God and dramatizing the subconscious content of a deity. In other words, if the universe is the conscious end product of mental activity of the Logos, so it's supposed to re- represent divine consciousness and it's supposed to represent a process into which the universe is brought into being. So it's almost like some sort of archetypal thought form that allegedly is ancient, right? We're not 100% sure people debate around that background, as you mentioned, but it's supposed to be some kind of meditative structure to which you link your consciousness to to evolve your consciousness and to be able to tap into cosmic energy. And one of the interesting things that I gleaned off of the classes and also from the book was that no matter what, regardless of what you believe, we're sort of swimming in in this 
energetic suit, that everything, not to sound like a hippie. And that was kind of one of the frustrating things of this. <laughs> because whatever language I use, the New Age movement stole, you know, so many little tidbits. It's going to sound akin to that. Um, everything really is a vibrational energy or frequency. It is. I know it's it's disgusting. I sound like a hippie on that, but <laughs> but it truly is. And and one of the things they stressed was if you come at things from a place of fear and you know deprivation and scarcity, you will attract that to you. So let's say none of us studied Kabbalah, none of it. I I think on some level, all of us tap into this cosmic energy, whether we're aware of it or not. And Kabbalah is there to train you of how to do it consciously. But I think just a person left to their own devices probably does some of the things from this. There's a lot of overlap between Kabbalah and psychology, I found, and self-improvement and and mm -hmm. kind of like addressing trauma and different issues. I saw so much of that. The classes that I looked at were interesting because they were selling it of less of a warning and more of a study of, oh, you can... It wasn't meant to be shallow, but it was a little bit of like, you can use this to improve your life, to get that job, to get that person, to get these things. And they had mentioned... A little shallow. I mean... I, I think a little bit more earthly, a little bit more materialistic. Right. But yeah. the person that was teaching that class said, there's 125 levels of the soul and more to gain of life in that layer. So within this structure, if you can see, these are the different spheres, the separim. And each of those spheres is a layer of consciousness, starting from this lower vibrational earthly material energy and arising up the tree you know through different formats it's not 100 percent just up and down reaching to sort of a god consciousness right and when i had looked at this it reminds me very much in a way of eastern orthodox theosis which is this this sort of like constant process of trying to unify with god but again as we mentioned the distinction here is that you are co-creating and manifesting with God and your own particular desires. I just want to add that that's exactly right. The concept is that all humans are co-creators with God, mm -hmm. which that specific concept uh, in traditional Christian perspective would be potentially problematic. But regardless, uh, you're co-creators with God. Everything is, is not simply being, but becoming. And you'll, you'll see that concept uh, throughout a lot of uh, the occult in general. You might even see it in pop culture references like Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. I'm not, I'm not saying that necessarily is literally what it's a, a Kabbalistic reference, but... Um, I'm sure you got that one right right on the shelf back there. Oh, yeah. I've got several copies. Straight from Brave New Books. <laughs> we used to sell... Man, that was our bestseller, actually. Um, but... Uh, I don't know about that book, though. Is that a book... Is that a, just like her life story? And is the Becoming... To Tell me what the Becoming his, thing means. His life story. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's why I kind of like, you know, sort of walked it back uh, after saying it is like, I'm not saying that that's specific. It's her life story. It's like a memoir. I'm not saying uh, that it's specifically a Kabbalistic reference. It's one of those things, if we get to talking about it, where you find occult or Kabbalistic references in media and uh, pop culture. Some of them are very obvious and probably undeniable. Others seem like hints, but it could be coincidence. But that's just one that came to mind when she was saying that. So it could be honestly just coincidental in that case. But like I said, that's just what kind of came to mind. Um, but um, yeah, the uh, um, with with respect to Kabbalah, and uh, it's like she said, Kabbalah. Just to expand on it, is essentially it's a uh, especially use, utilizing the Tree of Life diagram. It's essentially so practical Kabbalah is what she was talking about, kind of like practical magic. 
Uh, practical magic or Kabbalah encompasses two things. One, it can be literal magical working to achieve ends in the external world, or it can be uh, magical working within your own mind to achieve um, higher uh, states of being and what have you within your own mind. So there's a lot of those kind of workings where you meditate, you visualize each sephiroth, you visualize each color associated with it, and you ascend the tree. And it's very... Uh, so. There's a lot of syncretism between uh, Kabbalah and all other and, forms. And this of, part, sorry to interrupt, but this part yeah. is like a, a physical practice that you would, like someone would be guiding one through about how to do this visualization and how to slowly, I, I imagine this doesn't happen in an afternoon. I imagine this is like years of of practicing this type of meditation that where you slowly ascend up the tree, I guess. That's exactly it. I mean, it's like any other um, any other uh, practice, whether magical or otherwise, it takes, you know, years of training, um, and you you will typically have like a you know someone leading you a master or whatever. Um, but it, so like when you ascend the tree, um, like a Crowley, I forget the way he termed it, but it's like the snake wrapping up the tree. Oh, Kundalini! And, Boom! Well, exactly. Well, that's exactly it. It corresponds to Kundalini uh, and the uh, um, what are the seven things? Your chakras. So it's just the Kundalini ascending the chakras. It's the first thing I saw when I thought when I saw the cover of that book, they look the the chakras go straight up and down, but it, the color scheme is like exactly yep. what the chakras are. Exactly. Yep. So there's all these correspondences, and you know some of these correspondences one could argue are from historical influences from different schools as time went on. Uh, other people would argue, and these are not mutually exclusive ideas, that the the correspondences are there because these are all tapping into the ether in the higher realms where everything is the same. You know what I mean? So it's it's not simply coincidence historically that um, it's not necessarily that someone grafted on Kundalini and chakras to Kabbalah. The idea would be that this Eastern tradition and Western tradition tapped into the same thing, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Right, and, right. Uh, and just to get into it real quick, um, so you ascend the tree, the, the descent on the tree is basically, so Kabbalah is uh, in the... You got to come back well, down after all that work. <laughs> I know, right? Well, you got to, you know, you got God rested on the seventh day. You got to, you got to like uh, jump back in your bed. Um, but the, to kind of explain what she was saying, Kabbalah and the tree of life represents um, the being, the, the sort of uh, being of God, the nature of God, the, the nature of the universe, the nature of man, both his mind and his physical body. And uh, uh, similarly, it represents creation as such, in creation as a process. So creation is a process both in the sense of time evolving and things changing and things constantly becoming and being created. So essentially, just real quick, the, um, the, whole, the whole idea of creation in Kabbalah is that there was the Ein Sof or infinite or no end or infinite nothingness or infinite potential or infinite light. And... Um, the whole thing with like infinite nothingness, it's uh, if you think of nothing, it means no thing. And part of the the point of that is that um, to say no thing means that God and his infiniteness is no thing. He can't be reduced to a concept, to a label, to a individualized thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, the way that in Kabbalah, the world was created, you have this infiniteness and it contracted on itself called simsum. And... Um, this contraction is represented by um, a famous Masonic symbol. Called... It sounds like the Big Bang is just Kabbalah. Yeah, and actually, I was going to bring that up at some point. Is like it, it's no coincidence either, because again, I, I think Kabbalah has uh, quite a, quite a lot of elements of truth or wisdom and insight to it about reality. Um, 
but then also a lot of modern uh, physics, quantum mechanics, et cetera, was probably influenced ide- uh, metaphysically by Kabbalah. You know, there were a lot of uh, Jewish physicists who might have been practitioners of Kabbalah, non-Jewish physicists who are potentially secretly practitioners of, of Hermetic Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And so it's no surprise that you see these parallels between like the Big Bang and Kabbalah and all these other concepts. And it does make you wonder how much of it is oh, we discovered this science stuff that says that, the, you know, there was a Big Bang and, oh, wait, maybe Kabbalah was right. How much of it is that or how much of it is these religious people that practice this that have just basically inserted the ideology into science? I, that's that's a great question. And in a sense, the question is the answer. It's both. It's the chicken and the egg. You know what I mean? Chris, you might be familiar. I think, was it Jack Parsons that worked on rockets? That was a huge... Yes. The culprits might correct about that. Yeah, yeah. they used it to call the uh, uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory the Jack. Him Parsons and Alistair Crowley were like double teaming some chick in the desert to try to bring about <laughs> the horror of no, Babylon. It was Alistair Crowley. It was, it was you're L. Ron. I'm sorry. L. Ron Hubbard basically stole his wife from him. That's what it was, right? Right. They were both influenced by Crowley. Yeah. Oh, I just want to mention. Sorry, I just want to mention some some specifics. So things for people to chew on. So in terms of the relation, by the way, this correlates too with um, astrology. It correlates too Mm -hmm. with tarot cards. There's a lot of overlap between all these traditions, so to speak. But some of the references here is that there's different polarities. So there's a male polarity and a female polarity and that these cosmic forces interact, bounce off each other. And that it's not necessarily just like a or like in one direction or another sound effect. It's not necessarily a straight line that it's sort of like each of these are centrifugal in force, that each of these, it could just take forever to it's grow like around. It's like conspiracy theorist, like, <laughs> like whiteboard. Like. Yeah, it's, it's like people looking at this, like what? The original um, one. Mm-hmm. And that there's also, there's also a hidden sphere on here called that, which, which is knowledge. And there's also an inverted Kabbalah, which is supposed to be more of like lowering consciousness. And which reminds me, I think it's called the clip loss. I'm not going to say it. Really. The clipoth or how are you yeah, actually pronounce the it? I, I, found, I believe it's pronounced clipoth. There was this wonderful quote that I found within this book that thinks about the way that they use these energetic and hermetic principles against us, right? So something that I found was um, there's, there's sort of two things. One, in page 143, <laughs> the occult work of the inhibited, repressed person tends to have unbalanced forms of psychism and mediumship and is totally useless for magical work in which power has to be directed and handled by the will. Which, by the way, so Dion Fortune thought that if you were an unbalanced person, that this wouldn't necessarily do anything for you. You wouldn't be able to You're manifest. Like you are more unbalanced, arguably. Yeah, and and then, just to, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, one more quote in here, which I thought was how they use it against us. The person who is cut off from his instincts, which are in his roots to Mother Earth, and whose consciousness is consequence, there is a gap, cannot be an open channel through which power can be brought down the plans into manifestation of the physical level. So basically, the people who understand Kabbalah that can use this against us know that if people are sort of cut off from their own instincts and their own roots and their own sort of like remembering themselves as these conscious co-creators are going to be used to manifest things for those groups, right? So for instance, like MAGA is a sigil, right? It, mm-hmm. It's actually so MAGA is Strength. a sigil magic or strong with, and cheaper, yeah. Yeah, and it has basically think of the amount of power you could harness if you could get the collective unconscious to focus on your sigil, 
Mm. or on your magic or what you're trying to manifest, right? So you can have plenty of people that don't believe in Kabbalah and don't want to practice it, but almost practice it unintentionally by engaging in in some kind of drugs or some kind of meditation activity without understanding it or thinking about it. So it's just talking about someone, again, who's cut off from their instincts and consciousness. It could potentially be really dangerous to hijack their co-creativity and power. That's that's excellent. That was really well said. She's exactly right. Like, uh, but you mean it's excellent. Today's episode is sponsored by Fox and Sons Coffee. And let me just tell you, Stephen of Fox and Sons, he is not just an advertiser. He has been a supporter of this show from day one. And frankly, since before day one, because he came over with me from the old Lions and Liberty days. So true fan of the show. He started this company, Fox and Sons, out of his love for coffee and really out of wanting to further bond with his sons and spend time with him, just like he shared time with his father drinking coffee. Uh, He also gets to teach his sons about entrepreneurship and business through this endeavor. So I'm so happy to have Stephen and really his whole family, the Fox and the Sons, the whole gang as a supporters and sponsors of this show. Not only that, his beans are so high quality, fresh. Look, I just got two new bags right here. I got the Mexican and my favorite, the Den Blend Dark. The beans are super high quality, fresh and sourced from small organic farms, fair trade. None of this GMO garbage. They're all small batch roasted. This is high quality stuff. Subscriptions are by far the best way to get your coffee. I have a couple subscriptions going, uh, but that is the way to go. You never run out that way. I never run out. I always have my supply of Fox & Sons. So I want you to head over to foxandsons.com. Put in your order today. They ship fast. They ship now through the end of February. Also, by the way, you're going to get free shipping on any order over $37.99. By the way, while you're there, use discount code MCS to get 18% off any order over $25. Stephen Fox is a great man, a great friend, great supporter of the show. I encourage you to check out his coffee over at foxandsons.com. That excellent analysis, not excellent right. idea. Let's no, no, it's excellent that they consciousness. Good news, we got bad news. That sounds great. <laughs> I wanted to do this. No, but it's exactly, you know, Carl Jung, who is big into Kabbalah and other esoteric traditions, talked about how you and have there's to... Our overlap, there's our overlap with uh, psychiatry, again. You know, yeah, and actually, that a lot. on that point, too, if you really delve into uh, self-help, most self-help originated from the occult in some way. You know, uh, L. Ron Hubbard originally wrote self-help books, not just mm-hmm. the, the science fiction, but self-help books. Most self-help is based on magic or Thelema, Aleister Crowley's magic, or some occult system. But yeah, Jung uh, was really big into the occult and Kabbalah and talked about uniting the conscious and the unconscious. And that's what she kind of touched upon and we could touch upon more is that the, the Kabbalah, like a, a lot of basically every Eastern uh, and Western esoteric tradition is about polarities, opposites, duality, and uniting them to achieve magic, uni- uh, uniting them to achieve uh, apotheosis or godhood, like she mentioned. Um, and so... That's exactly what they do. They 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 basically harness and hijack our unconscious minds that they purposely schism from our conscious minds in order to not only prevent us from being whole human beings um, and to be healthy and balanced, but to be able to, uh, to, to utilize this as this mass neural network of technology of the unconscious. And so, like she said, if we ever get, if we get around to it, talking about Kabbalah and 9-11, that's exactly what 9-11 was in a sense, is like you had... Billions let's, of people. Let's, let's just get around to it. Just dive right in. I, I need. I need to. I need this kind of analysis in my life. Yeah. Well. So then. Uh, then to continue with that, to dive right in. Uh, essentially, um, 
9-11 was this event where you had billions of human consciousnesses, uh, consciousnesses and unconsciousnesses, unconsciousnesses, uh, well, both of them filled with fear and anxiety and hate, right? All this negative energy focused on essentially one point in space and time, New York City, the Twin Towers. Um, and of course, this was being reinforced by the visual images being given, not just the emo negative emotions being reinforced, but the focus on the, the space and time, right? And so, and how many times did we all see that play? I mean, I, I must have seen that thousands of times. The plane, the plane flying into the building, the boom, boom, boom. Right, over and over. And of course, they, they, you know, even to this day, in a sense, they continue to utilize that on some level to promote the magical effects of it. But so, my, so speaking of nine eleven, my thesis has been, and this is not by any means completely unknown to the 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 uh, conspiracy world, is that nine eleven was this giant uh, Masonic Kabbalistic. Uh, magical me mega ritual uh, on the base level. Obviously, it had other layers to it for other objectives. And that's the whole the whole thing with the elites and the occult is there's always multiple layers, right? You're always killing twenty birds with one stone or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, if you want, so as an example, one of one of the texts of Kabbalah is the Sefer Yetzirah, a book of formation or creation, and in the Sefer Yetzirah, it basically uh, it's a brief book. It, it enumerates, uh, literally and figuratively, how the world was created through number. So through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which are associated with the, the paths on the tree of life in Kabbalah of the 10 Sephiroth of the tree of, of, the tree of life. So as a quick side, um, when you hear of like 33 in Freemasonry and 33 being this magical number, one, it is a, a master number in that it's three times 11. 11 is a master number. It's the number of magic. But it's also the uh, consummation of the tree of life. So, in other words, um, the tree of life has the ten sephiroth, the twenty-two mm -hmm. paths between the sephiroth. That's why you need the video version of the show, kids, because Rachel's got the visual display right, right exactly. Here and and I've got some visuals if I need them. But um, so there's the ten, the twenty-two paths, the ten sephiroth, the tree of life, and then if you include daat, which she mentioned, which is knowledge, that's thirty-three. So, um, getting back though. Um, the Sefer Yetzirah, Book of Creation Formation, basically gives a brief explanation of how, of the Tree of Life. And in it, it says of the Sephiroth, which the Sephiroth are the 10 sort of spheres or worlds that she's showing. Sephiroth literally means counting uh, on the Tree of Life. And it says 10 are the numbers of the ineffable Sephiroth. 10 and not 9, 10 and not 11. And so what it's saying is that... Um, if the tree of life is represented by the 10 Sephiroth and indeed by the number 10, 10 is the number of completion of perfection. It's the, it's the, it's the, 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 the number of the union of polarities. Cause you have the one and you have the zero, you have the being and the non-being you have the lingam. Which is the also our binary code to tie the nerds back into this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, coincidence, you know, mm -hmm. probably not, but yeah, you, the, you know, being non-being, you have the, the phallus, the lingam, the yoni being the opposite of the phallus, the male, female, the union of opposites, right? And so, ten is the is the consummation of creation of existence. And so, essentially, in magical terms, what the Sefer is saying is that nine and eleven, and especially nine eleven combined, is the antithesis of completion, perfection, creation. What is the mm -hmm. antithesis of creation? Destruction. When you call nine one one, when do you call nine one one? When destruction. Holy or crap! Death and how did all these years I never even connected that then just that that number to the event i think why, no and why they're both used no in fact uh i forget the exact timing but essentially the 
the proposal for 911, which it, it took years for it to be implemented in every state, but it was a federal initiative, was uh, it was six months after the uh, groundbreaking for the twin the the World Trade Center that the uh, initiative was you know enacted for 911 to become an emergency number. Wow. <laughs> and so again, uh, when do you call 911? When death or destruction is imminent. Tree of life, what's the opposite of life? Death, what's the opposite of creation? Destruction. So, you know, I understand where it can be a stretch, but it's it's a really logical thing if you think about it. And more so real quick, 9 and 11, if 10 is the perfect number, 9 is one short of 10. 11 is one in excess of 10. In other words, they both represent on bo- both ends imperfection and, e- and essentially evil, right? What's the opposite of good? Evil. And so my point being that you could argue Kabbalistically that 9-11 literally means death and destruction. And of course, what happened on that day, right? Um, the other thing is like with the Twin Towers, and again, some of this is not unknown in conspiracy circles, but the Twin Towers are the Twin Pillars of Jack and Boaz, which were the uh, at the entrance to Solomon's Temple, um, which uh, all Freemasonic temples are modeled on exactly. More visual so, displays. This is perfect synergy having both of you here. Yeah, for it really that. is. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, on one hand, you have mercy, the, the left pillar. It might be the right one. I always forget. But you have mercy and severity. These are opposites. And in the middle, you have equilibrium. Um, and the, the tree of life is basically like she alluded to earlier. It's a balance of polarities. Everything is balanced in, in male, female opposites, literally on every path every Sephiroth, every pillar. And so um, you could argue that the the Twin Towers represent the Twin Pillars of Jack and Boaz, of Solomon's Temple, which is the same as the Twin Pillars at every entrance of, Mas- of Masonic temples, which is the same as the outward polarity pillars of the Tree of Life. And so um, when you, um, and interestingly, you know, the, 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 the outward pillars were brought down, right? And what came in its place? One the Freedom Tower. Tower. So the Freedom Tower, mm-hmm. you could argue, represents the pillar of equilibrium. Um, and then uh, a lot of people don't know this, but there was a statue in the middle, in between the Twin Towers called the, the Great Spherical Caryatid. And it was by this German uh, sculptor called Fritz Koenig. Um, his, his last name meaning king. Coincidence, but interesting. Um, the Great Spherical Caryatid, uh, first of all, uh, a sphere like is what essentially what the Sephiroth are. We see the circles, but that's the two-dimensional representation. Really, they're spherical properly, right? Um, so the the great spherical caryatid statue stood in the middle between the pillars, and a uh, a caryatid is a type of pillar. A caryatid is usually an ancient Greek pillar that had like a a, a human figure uh, carved into it. So literally, by definition, you have a middle pillar. And we can get into this too, but like according to Fritz Koenig, the uh, the, the statue uh, represented the Kaaba, Kabbalah Kaaba, um, uh, the 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 cube that's in Mecca at the uh, mosque there. That's the holiest site in Mecca, where the uh, Muslims do their Hajj, their pilgrimage, and go seven times around. And what 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 makes that more interesting too is that officially the uh, Japanese architect who designed the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. Uh, officially modeled it to represent the uh, the mosque in Mecca where the Kaaba is. Mm. This is officially the case. I mean, the World Trade Center brought down in a Muslim jihad, supposedly, officially represented the holiest site in Islam. 
And if you actually compare the two, there are at least three elements and four elements in common. Uh, the, the mosque has um, twin pillars, actually sets of twin pillars all around. It has these row of arches all around. And at the base of the twin towers are these row of arches. And then you have the Kaaba, which again is represented by the great spherical caryatid statue. And then actually there's a ring of benches and uh, plants where people are, you know, uh, sit when they're tired uh, at this mosque that was also reproduced at the Twin Towers. And so, again, this is sort of a side thing. This is, you know, the rabbit hole has rabbit holes. I mean, this is what you get when you work at a conspiracy bookstore. I mean. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and uh, just a couple more elements, if I may, but like, yeah. um, for instance, um, Building 7 uh, was known as the Salomon Brothers Building. Salomon is just another way of saying Solomon. Solomon Brothers, that's just a clever way of saying Freemasons hmm. because everything is based on Solomon, Solomon's Temple, etc. So it's essentially a little wink to say this is Freemasonic uh, at the basis of Freemasonry's Kabbalah. Um, and then even seven, you know, it's 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 itself a number of, of divinity, of, of perfection. Um, seven is a triangular number. If you sum one to seven, which the formula is n times n plus one over two, you get 28. Um, and 28 has all these properties, including uh, the first verse of the Bible has uh, the 28 letters. And uh, I'm losing it in my head right, real quick. Hold on, I have it written down. Um, you can probably help me with this. Uh, uh, you can uh, also take 28 and take eight and have 10. If you add the two and the eight gives you 10, that perfection number all over again. And I, is, I wonder. If, oh, interesting. Yeah, because yeah, you 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 reduce it uh, numerologically. That's a really good point. Well, if well, I may, the, just the numbers quick. are a huge part of Kabbalah, right? All this numerology stuff. Oh, yeah. mean, it's like it's it's. I mean, you see it. You see, I think all the stuff you ever see about you know angel numbers, this and that. I think you can trace it all back to the numerology found within Kabbalah. Yeah, it's that truth exactly. that's scattered from Kabbalah, you know, into the New Age. Oh, like I mentioned, the like attracts like. You know, you attract what you think and you put out there. Your energetic frequency attracts a similar pattern of frequency. Law of attraction, yeah. Yeah, all of that is sort of downstream of Kabbalic ideas. And Chris, I just want to throw it back to Michelle Obama in that book, Becoming, Michael. which is really about Big Mike and <laughs> Big his Mike. transition. <laughs> I want to point out that he's got an extra tower that nobody knows about. Is that chapter really in the book or they, they kind of gloss over that one? Yeah, but oh, he's, no, got his own, he's got his own tower hidden, you know? <laughs> His own building. I mean, honestly, that, that's interesting. You, however yeah. seriously you mean that, that's kind of an interesting point. You wouldn't, you can't put it past these people to do things like that. I like that. I'd never heard of that. <laughs> Real quick, though, the twenty I was missing is um, it's the numerical, and we can delve into geometry slightly more uh, with this as an entree. Uh, the twenty-eight is the uh, is the summation of koach. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, or power, um, and so you know. The World Trade Center represents financial power, right? Mm. Um, maybe it's a stretch, but like you see all these correspondences, which is, you know, correspondences are related to sympathetic magic where you, you essentially utilize correspondences to promote magic, magical things. So like you combine silver with a full moon because silver represents the moon to enhance your magical uh, working, right? Um, but with numerology, gematria, which um, basically comes from the word geometry or earth measure, um, because keep in mind the the, the Jews, you know the Jews, uh, the Hebrews who became Israel and Judah, and then the Jews were in a uh, part of the world where you had you know the succession of empires of Babylon, 
uh, Medo Persia, uh, Greece, and Rome, and you had all these influences, especially the Hellenistic or Greek influence. In fact, um, you know, the five books of the Bible, uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Num, well, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, essentially, these are all Greek words because of the Septuagint, where you had 70 rabbis who can, uh, translated the, the Torah uh, into Greek. My point being that um, you have all these um, uh, Greek influences, uh, and so that's why you have a word like gematria comes from Greek rather than, say, Hebrew. And so uh, even Greek has its own uh, gematria, if you will. It's called isopsophy. Um, a lot of ancient languages had, if not, an, had a numerology slash num, uh, numerical equivalent of letters and all the magic that attends that, because uh, remember in Kabbalah, in a lot of ancient traditions, the spoken word brought the universe into existence. The spoken word and letters are primary elements of existence. And so gematria is the same thing. It's Hebrew, Hebrew numerology, where essentially each word, each letter has a numerical value. Each word has a summation of those numerical values of each letter. And basically when different words uh, have the same numerical summation, they have a, they have a, a meaningful correspondence. Um, and this was kind of popularized by the movie Pi by Aaron Aronofsky, if you guys ever saw that. Yes. Um, I think that was my first introduction to Gematria. But Rachel, did you, um, you want to say anything about Gematria real quick? Yeah, of course. Uh, a couple of things on this one. So again, not encouraging Kabbalah, but I will say having an understanding of what it's about and why it's used like Chris, I had never heard of a Kabbalistic breakdown of 9-11 before, which is so great, Me which neither. is why people and should to this, to this show. Go into it if you want, but oh, of course, definitely but more, but yeah. yeah, I just want to say real fast, but having sort of this understanding helps to decode the event and make it go from being obviously still tragic to being like, hey, this is why to a lot more to understand the purple the purposefulness of it to say, hey, this statue's hero. Because that happens in New York City all the time. There'll be a black cube statue or there's this weird bull statue or, you know, and it's And most people are just like, huh, new weird thing, whatever. And they don't realize it's really meaningful. Yeah, bull represents anything from a left for the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet to Zeus to, yeah, anyway, uh, Aries, go ahead. So New York is just so easy, like you mentioned, Mark, to dismiss it as another weird art mm-hmm. installation. But this happens all the time and everywhere. And it's so purposeful and it's so intentional. And so yes. to hear you talk about 9-11 and using Kabbalah uh, to break it down gives gives so much more substance to it and the, the occult rituals behind it. And like, hey, there were all these little things. Like, I didn't know about that separate statue, that chariot statue that you had mentioned you know, being there earlier, or that even that Building 7 had references to some kind of, uh, you know, other statue somewhere else or some kind of building somewhere else. So knowing these little things just adds such a um, bigger picture to why they do what they do. Right. And the energy and intention behind it. And just that, you know, things may seem random. And of course, they're obviously tragic. And they're obviously like, so where I live in a small town, there's a 9-11 little sculpture in this little park by the train station. And the saddest thing is there's a placard there and it's for the people who died for my small town uh, within on that day at 9-11 at the towers. And it says on that placard, we thank you for your sacrifice. And they're not talking about, Mm. I believe 
uh, people who are necessarily EMT or something like this. It's a weird phrase. Yeah, if you're just killed randomly, normally that's not really considered it, a sacrifice. It's a right. terrible, tragic thing. But it's, not a, 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 it's a weird an odd way of saying you were you who died were a sacrifice. Right. right. It's, you didn't it's sacrifice weird, yourselves, but yes. you were a sacrifice. Right. Exactly. It says, sorry, it doesn't say thank you for sacrifice. It says um, you you know your sacrifice for our freedom. Sorry. That for the freedom the power, which yeah, which is so strange because we have less freedom, right? Like over time, we have less freedom, and right. it's still like you know you've been sacrificed. It's a it's an odd little everything's the inversion. With it, that's ex that's exactly it. Everything is the inversion. Yeah. As an example, real quick in Kabbalah, the name of Satan is the in inverted name of God, Yahweh. So it's mm -hmm. all about inversion. That's a great point. And, and yeah, it's it's all these clever tongue in cheek things. Like just real quick the. The uh, Dream Theater album that was released on 9-11-2001, uh, where it shows um, an apple and the Twin Towers on fire on the cover of the album. At the back of the album, it says, in stores September 11th. What, it, what it's really saying is, this is in store mm. September 11th. They do, they do all these little crazy things. And one more little thing to, to like, I, I agree. It's not just understanding this on a deep or spiritual level. It's understanding how these things can corroborate and confirm what we already kind of know uh, about who did it and why. But like, for instance, the, the Freedom Tower. By the way, freedom is often a code for essentially becoming God or apotheosis or mm -hmm. transhumanism, mm -hmm. actually. It was you're, being the, the, you're freeing yourself from whatever former restraints you might have had in the material world, and now That's you can exact, create your own reality. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And so on the Freedom I'd Tower... I'd be such the, a good Kabbalist. Well, thank you. Um, the first time anyone told me that, uh, but the like the Freedom Tower, the official uh, 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 what do you call architectural design name of the Freedom Tower is a square anti-prison. So what is the what is the trade center? It's the One World Trade Center, right? One World, right? New World Order, One World. Um, a square, like in the ancient world, represented the Earth, the four corners of the Earth, the four winds. Back a when they knew it was flat. Yeah. What's that? Back when they knew it was flat. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. The shape of this I don't know which way to go on that. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> hey, I'm still, I'm open-minded. I'm open-minded, I'll just say. It's, it all comes back yeah, to Kabbalah because there's this It comes back like, to the book, right. Book. Exactly. <laughs> um, so square anti-prism, what does a prism do? It takes light and breaks it into pieces, colors, right? Mm. Well, figuratively, what does an anti-prism do? So, so a prism takes one light, white, breaks it into many colors, right? What does figuratively an anti-prism do? It takes many into one. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Mm -hmm. What is a square? It's the earth. So in other words, a square anti-prism is just a clever code for one world. Mm. Does that make sense? And yes. so um, my point being, there's another example where they put these codes in, and you know maybe we're all schizophrenic and crazy, but it's the more, the more you see it, the, the, the more of these data points there are, it, it, the harder it is to kind of just dismiss them as coincidence, you know. I want to give a take on gematria and numerology, and I do want to say, me personally, I believe that both are used to signal different messages through the news to create headlines to send certain messages. I don't know how. Have you ever seen the compilation? There's like a compilation video of them reporting COVID numbers and they kept saying 33, 33, 33, 33, 33 dot here, right. 33 dot here. It was over and over. And I mean, obviously it's over and over. It's edited that way, but they're real news. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's crazy. It's hard to, yeah, hard to just that's dismiss like a calling card. It's like a calling card or a symbol. Obviously, when I see 33, we're like, oh, Illuminati confirmed. That's so easy. 
But I do I do think, wonder if it is yeah. sort of a thing where like, yeah, we can't do texts and emails. It's a little risky. And in fact, even meeting in person, people are going to be like, hey, all these people are flying. So we just communicate with numbers. I mean, yes. that is pretty much the idea, right? Yeah. But I do wonder to what capacity is it valuable or worthwhile in terms of sports bets? Because I do think that sports are largely rigged, maybe not 100%, but that a large amount, you know, who plays who and who wins and, and to what score they're going to win. And who they're dating. Certain- Certainly controlled. I believe that the Super Bowls are often satanic rituals. Sorry. Well, the you know, shows at least, right? You know, it's kind of a, a thing. And then you've compounded now Taylor Swift psyops and everything into it. But that being said, I don't know to what capacity people can use Gamatro numerology to predict sports bets. I don't know. You know, but I do know at the very least that these things are communicate are used to communicate certain ideas through the news and come up with headlines, almost like a magical algorithm. Of some kind. Right. Well, just to touch upon that real quick, um, one, absolutely, these these numbers are signals to other initiates, right? Uh, and by the way, real quick, you, you mentioned the word profane earlier. That's actually a technical term in the occult and Freemasonry. The profane comes from, I think it's Latin. It's not Greek. It's Latin. It literally means before or outside the temple. So in other words, you're, you're just a, the mass. You are not initiated. You're not in the temple where you would be initiated. So it's a technical term. And so it's used to signal other elites. It's used to promote magic. Uh, to get achieve ends, magical ends, but well, you know, obviously, it's difficult. How how could any person use it to predict things? I think there's a real possibility. I think it's if not a possibility, I'm sure it probably can happen. It's probably really hard. On that note, I just want to say that I our friend whom I mentioned earlier, Rose, whose Substack is Movements, Patterns, and Formations. Please check it out. She does a lot of um, Gematria stuff. Uh, she's a big uh, sports ball fan, as she would say. Um, and she's really big into Gematria, and she's uh, sent me some uh, Gematria stuff she's done recently on actually even the Super Bowl. I seem to have misplaced it. But the point is, whether or not you can successfully predict it in any statistical way where you come out ahead over the long term, um, it at least signals that there's something, like you said, it's rigged or something's up. Or it's, Do you it's mean like men- in terms of you could look at like the what the, the lines they publish and say, oh, this is actually maybe a, a signal of something in the, the betting lines and that kind of thing? Or is what, it, like what do you mean the betting line like the what do you mean by decoding it by by like predicting it with the oh uh, well the well number, so yeah. some of it is simply like maybe what you're saying where um um the, the, the scores at the end of the game or uh some prominently featured uh player's number or the age of somebody Rose did this one where uh all these same number of correspondences with the age of these coaches and whatever. Um, but some of it is simply like when you do Gematria sums of, of, of directly relevant names, like the names of the coaches or players or the stadium, they will sum to all the same number. And so when they, when they tend to sum to all the same number over and over, that is theoretically an indication that there's something intentionally meaningful going on here, that Gematria is intentionally being used for whatever reason, signaling or magical practice or whatever, if that makes sense. Yeah. So do you think it, that that Gematria and these all this numerology, do you think it's used just as like a code to communicate? Or is there, do you think it actually works, I guess is what I'm saying, in terms of not just, not just decoding it, but actually do you think they can use numbers to actually sort of alter, alter reality or enact plans and that sort of thing? I, I think so. So uh, like, for instance, when... Um, in, ver- in certain places, the Bible has warnings about use of magic or even prohibitions. 
it, uh, again, this is from my perspective, it wouldn't have a warning or a prohibition if it didn't work, if that makes sense. Uh, and of course, you know, you get into quantum mechanics and essentially it's all about will and observation, consciousness affecting the world, magic. But um, I think it, uh, I think it does work. Um, and part of it is that like, it, it gets back to um, kind of psychology and the occult and symbolism where, you know, for instance, they've done these studies that are decades old where if you have a line that's just straight up and you're looking at it and they have electrodes on your brain, very specific neurons will light up, the same ones. If the line rotates, specific neurons will light up. If the line goes up, the point being, I think symbols have both on a psychological and spiritual level, but also on simply a neurological level, mm -hmm. a, um, a an ability to influence your thinking on a just a really pre-conscious, like primitive fundamental level that even though primitive is because it's fundamental, it can just influence everything you do, whether whether in your conscience or consciousness or unconsciousness. And so I think they they have a power on the psychological level within people's minds. And I do believe on some more transcendental level, like in a Pythagorean way, where you know Pythagoras kind of in, like Plato thought that numbers have this transcendent existence. Um, I mean, Plato thought that forms did, but essentially Pythagoras just thought the same thing with numbers. Um, I think I think it's real. I think it can have an influence. Does it always work? Uh, is everyone you think is every example that you think is an example an example? I don't know, but I personally I think it's real. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think there's a lot more to dig into on this stuff. Obviously, I think I want to dig into some of these weirder aspects in the smoke-filled room here in a minute. But why don't we uh, do sort of a, a final word for now on, on our thoughts of, of the day on Kabbalah, and then we'll go. We'll see where we dig into in the bonus segment. But Rachel, uh, you, you fell off for a second there. But is there any uh, last thoughts you have, or anything you want to follow up on one? Because what Chris was talking about right there with um, the symbols that, and the the method, the uh, sort of the numerology and the symbols that they implant into us, it just made me think back to what you were saying about the sigils and MAGA. And, and really, if I think deeper, I mean, if you think of any corporate logo, I mean, Nike, Coca. I mean, these are these are images and branded into our mind, and maybe maybe. They, in some points, they are "quote unquote" innocent enough that they just want us to buy their product, and it's it's a business thing and whatever. But I mean, and certainly that's with a lot of this too, stuff, though, but yeah, but and that's and that's magic too. Either way, so uh, you know, voila. Uh, maybe me buying a Coke isn't as bad as like you know taking down the World Trade Center. I don't know, but but, <laughs> <laughs> but sugar is pretty bad for you. So yeah, uh, something some uh, an idea we can talk more about it in that smoke filled room is that it seems to we've all heard of these different theories, Jungian theories of bringing the unconscious or the subconscious to the surface, right? Mm -hmm. So we've heard of the term shadow work, which is where you you deal with your stuff, you know, your trauma, your this, your that, and you, you, bring it, you bring it to the surface. So it seems like there's this layer of Kabbalah where it, it, it sort of promises to do that with you or in accordance with the cosmic energy and something like that. And I'm kind of seeing a lot of overlap in the things that I've researched with the psychology with, with that specifically. Um, and again, this kind of reminds you a little bit of like Jordan Peterson's kind of psychology, not that it's only his, but I was going to say again, once again, I think it's important to, to at least have a cursory understanding of what these things mean, why mm -hmm. the, you know, the powers that shouldn't be use it on us and maybe what, why they're so into all these numbers and things. And the sad thing is it's because it works. And, and if it works, I don't mean that it should or shouldn't. Like as Chris mentioned earlier, there's no inheritance to it. It's sort of amoral in a way. I mean, it's often presented as supposed to be in accordance with natural law or maybe 
maybe, you know, you use God's will or something, but it's not very often that I've heard of Kabbalists try to, I suppose, use this in correlation with God's will. But... Well, and just a quick addition. Yeah, I mean, it, it essentially is a tool at the end of the day. Tools are inherently neutral. The the will and use behind it is what makes it good or bad. Um, and uh, I forget what you just said I was going to comment on. But um, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, Shadow work? I can't remember. Well, hopefully you remember it in the, <laughs> the second part and get back to it. But um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it, 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 even just within this conversation, I there's... And this happens every episode because I can't avoid all this this overlap, no matter even if I think I'm doing a, a conversation about a totally different subject. But I mean, I just did a conversation uh, a couple weeks ago with Courtney Turner about Tavistock and how and how Carl Jung came out of Tavistock and all the tie-ins with um, you know psychology and uh, psychotherapy and the, the. I mean, it's just it's all the same. It's it's really like there's just one conversation that you're going to get to at the end of the day. There's it is really the occult origins of all of our belief systems and of all of the the systems of control that are are used against us, I guess you could say right. at the end of the Actually, day. Actually, one last quick comment. I remember yeah. touching upon what she said. If if this stuff didn't work, the elites who are the smartest people in the world who have access to arcane hidden knowledge that we don't, um, who obsessively, zealously utilize these occult principles and everything they do, they're like they're obsessive. It, they would not be so obsessive if it didn't work. And again, these are smart people. They're not idiots. They're not, well, they're crazy, but not in that way. So I just want to throw that in. Absolutely. All right. Well, Rachel, Chris, uh, this has served as, I guess, a little, a uh, little like Kabbalah 101 amateur style. Not that well, we are amateurs. That's what we all are. Uh, but uh, uh, none of us claim to be experts, is what is my point. But we're we're giving our own thoughts on on what we've seen out there and how it ties into. I mean, just I can see how much all this stuff ties into a lot of the greater conversations that that we have here every week. So thank you both for joining me, and uh, we're gonna have a little fun and dive over into the smoke filled room. But thank you both for coming on my show. Thank you. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And remember, if you're listening here on the public feed, that means you're only getting about two-thirds of the conversation because every one of these interviews goes approximately 30 minutes longer in what is called the Smoke-Filled Room bonus segment. To get the complete version of every episode, just become a subscriber to The Mark Claire Show. You can do so on Patreon, on Subscribestar, on Rockfin. You can find all the links you need over at markclaire.com. That's markclaire, M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. Until next time, my friends, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.